The only announcement that I'm aware of for for uh, next week is, uh, I mean, for this month has to do with the men's prayer breakfast, which is on Saturday morning, August the 18th. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we always make it our practice to be spiritually prepared to study God's Word, spiritually prepared to worship any time we are studying God's Word, reading God's Word. This should be our attitude as this is part of our individual worship as part of our corporate worship. So we have a few moments of silent prayer because Scripture says that we must be in right relationship with God, cleansed of sin, and so this is a time for us in silent prayer to confess any uh, known sins so that we can be in fellowship with him. So we'll bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, what an honor and privilege it is that we can come together as a body of believers, a unique body in this church age, all believers united together in the body of Christ, who is our head, and that this is is the foundation for our spiritual life and our service to you. And Father, we have we live in a time when so often Christians have lost the sense of what it means to worship you, to focus upon you. And it is, as it has been, I guess, throughout the ages, often the result of corruption and distortion. And Father, we pray that as we study, we might come to a greater understanding of the principles that are laid out from Genesis to Revelation that relate to our understanding of your your majesty, the fact that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, and that we cannot even imagine how to create from nothing a simple molecule. That we have people today talking about artificial intelligence and we can't even figure out or recreate the functioning of a brain of a gnat, and yet we blow ourselves up into thinking that we can somehow duplicate a human intellection. Father, we pray that you would challenge us as we study through your word tonight. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, after the last couple of weeks, I've had several comments from people that just a little bit uh, overwhelmed with all of the uh, material that we've covered, which is a good thing. Uh, because uh, I don't know that you realize it, but there are times when, as a result of my study and reading, that I get overwhelmed with what I am putting together and trying to teach it and trying to assimilate it. And as I told one person, I said, I'm only a couple of 
footsteps ahead of the hounds on this. So it's um, it's it's fun and it's exciting to dig through the scriptures and come to think through some of these things. And and um, what uh, we're studying here is is on worship at the very beginning, focusing on what it was like in the Garden of Eden, and we're doing that because the some of many of the things that we see in the Garden of Eden are thematically restated throughout the scripture until we come to the end, until we come to Revelation. And that is a view that is not typically taught or understood. And it's uh, it's important to understand this for, I think, for a couple of reasons. And so tonight we're going to look, we're going to do a lot of what I did, la- covered last week but we're going to drill down a little more into some of it or think about it a little more. Last time I wanted to get the sort of the A to Z down so that we could see what the structure was and then talk about that a little bit more in uh, in the Bible class tonight so we can start to see how these things fit. Now, eventually, and as we'll see some tonight, you're going to see how this sets a pattern, the, the foundation of the pattern of these patterns comes in the Garden of Eden. And starting then after the fall, we're going to see the introduction of sacrifice. We're going to see the introduction of uh, corporate worship in by the end of Genesis chapter 3. We're going to see the development of certain themes in worship that uh, come to play through uh, Noah and Abraham and Moses and then the whole full-blown expression of corporate worship in the Mosaic Law. And then we'll get into some other other developments each time we go through this trying to draw draw it out so that it's not just talking about what happened in the Old Testament but how that lays the foundation for what continues and how those principles are laid out even in uh, the church age. So we're talking about what it means to worship God, and we've got a working definition here that biblical worship is the celebration of having eternal fellowship with the sovereign and holy triune God. And the reason, and I really want to emphasize this is biblical worship. What we're doing is we're developing a a theology as we walk through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It's biblical. It's not traditional. We don't want to do things simply because it's tradition. Uh, in a lot of churches, uh, I read there was a uh, read a pamphlet years ago called The Seven Last Words of the Church. Anybody know what the seven last words of the church are? We never did it that way before. We don't know why we did it that way, but we never did it any other way before, so this is how we do it. And what happens when we study a topic like worship, because we don't think about it much. When you go to most evangelical churches, they do what they do, and there's not much instruction. I've talked about this as uh, we have a phrase that a lot of people have used, ritual without reality, but the reason it's ritual without reality is because it's ritual without explanation. And ritual it relates to the symbols of 
worship. And that's part of what I'm talking about as we look at uh, Eden and then later in the temple and tabernacle and then how these symbols are picked up. And when I talk about symbols, it, it's not allegory because the symbols are grounded in something that's literal, physical, and actual so that you have, uh, for example, literal water, but that water has a representational feature to it. It's used to represent something. So the literal water, the literal rivers that flowed out of Eden were created by God, and it is a picture of God providing that which is necessary for life, and that that the emphasis here is that there is no life apart from God, that we're all so totally dependent upon God, and yet man, in his rebellion, and his rejection of God wants to act as if he can sustain himself apart from God and find happiness and meaning and stability without having a any kind of relationship with God. And so biblical worship is important to emphasize because what happens in every generation, there is a degeneration that takes place in our understanding of worship. And we often have heard the statement that every generation has to has to earn its freedom again. Well, every generation needs to earn its spiritual freedom again. And part of that is every generation needs to recover from the uh, the the natural or the sinful deterioration or decline that sets in in every generation. There has to be a a a, a group, a pivot, a a a core that is going to be uh, influential through their own spiritual life. Not that they set out to be influential but that because there's enough of them living their spiritual life and making decisions based on the truth of Scripture, that it has a transformative impact on on the culture around them. Otherwise, there's this deterioration into paganism. And that's what we see exhibited in much of the Old Testament, is, is the cultures of the civilizations that surround uh, Israel are cultures that have a shadow memory of Eden. They have a shadow memory of that paradise of God. They have a shadow memory of God's interference in judgments in human history. They, and this is this is often uh, revealed through corrupt and distorted uh, the corrupt and distorted memories that show up in their in their legends and in their myths and uh, related to the flood. Almost every culture has a worldwide fl- flood myth, and, and that's just a distortion that, of, of an original reality that's given in the Bible. Almost every culture, every false religion, without exception, I don't know of any exception, has at the core of its worship of its deities sacrifice some kind of sacrifice where do you where do you think that came from was it just happenstance that somehow this just just showed up across all these different ethnic groups and across different continents and spread out across the world or was there some original event 
that emphasize the necessity of sacrifice and that over time that got distorted and uh, degenerated into different myths and different ideas down through the uh, down through the centuries and that's what the bible depicts is there's an original event that occurred there was a, gar- a historical literal physical garden of eden and its memory is present throughout many cultures in different ways but it's been distorted and corrupted down through down through the ages so we there needs to be this recovery of biblical worship even in 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 christian tradition it's easy to get in the trap of doing things the same way every Sunday. that's what we're comfortable with we grew up in a certain tradition the church did things a certain way and that was our worship service have you ever thought about that term we call it a worship service why do you think we call it a service what does service mean it means that it is something to do with serving God so when we're involved in a worship service in what way are we serving God in that service how does that connect those are the kinds of questions that we need to ask and when we look across the spectrum of christian denominations we see that there are a lot of different practices that take place within certain uh, uh, of their traditions and their worship services and where did those things come from did they just wake up one day and decided, oh, all of a sudden we're going to have liturgy, we're going to do this, we're going to light candles, we're going to recite certain creeds, and but but doesn't that have some sort of source also in a a biblical archetype that somehow got a little distorted down through the ages? So those are the things that we're we're looking at, and so in a uh, working definition. The focus is on a celebration. Now, often we think of a celebration as having a big party. We celebrate New Year's Eve. That's a great celebration. We have a party. We uh, sing and we go to parties and we have a great time. But we also have a celebration on days like Memorial Day where we are celebrating the lives of men and women who gave, made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. It's not a time for partying. It's not a time for all of the things that we think of in terms of that, that first blush definition of, of uh, celebration. It's a time of, of sober reflection, it should, or should be, not a time of going out and buying a new washer and dryer at the Memorial Day sale or other trivial things like that that often characterize our our culture. That's what I like about going over, being in Israel on Memorial Day. They have Memorial Day uh, one day, and it's and everything shuts down. But towards the end of the day, you start to see things change. You see some stands being put up. You see uh, loudspeakers coming out. You see stands being put up all over. Israel and its preparation because it's sundown all of a sudden it shifts from Memorial Day remembering those who gave their lives for their freedom 
for the independence of Israel in 1948 and continuing that, and it shifts to Independence Day, which now the celebration changes its whole tone and focus. The fireworks go off, there's bands playing everywhere, there's street dances, it's just a, a remarkable shift. And those are two different ways of celebrating. So when we celebrate God, we're showing gratitude, we're showing thankfulness, we're, we're thinking and reflecting upon what was needed in order to give us this relationship with God that is eternal. Why was it important? Who is God that he made this? And so that's been the focus the last few weeks, is thinking about God as the creator and the majesty of this God. And too often we have a small view of God, and we don't think deeply and profoundly enough about God. We live in a world that's too too busy. We live in a world that is extremely shallow. We live in a world where where what reigns is the superficial, the quick, the, the quick sermon, the 20-minute sermonette, all of these kinds of things. We ought to stop and say, does this really honor a God who has created a world that is of such precision uh, down to the minutest nanoparticle and a God who designed a, a salvation that is so complex and so multifaceted but yet so simple that you can express it in a simple statement like just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We live in a world where most of us, myself included, don't have nearly enough time to reflect upon God's Word. We haven't been challenged to do that even in our own life. Recently, as of yesterday, I I heard something that I did not know before. Now, I've talked before, I used an example before, that when I was in my first church, I pastored a church down in Lamarck, and the pastor who had been there from 1933 to 1973 had retired and had moved back into the community and was in in the congregation. And I used to love talking to him because life before World War II was different than life after World War II. Uh, life in the 30s, in the 20s and 30s, this man went to Moody Bible Institute in the 20s, and when he finished, he went to Austin Presbyterian Seminary. When he graduated from Austin Presbyterian Seminary and he wanted to be ordained, he had to take oral and written exams to demonstrate that he could read, read and exegete Greek and Hebrew. I don't know of any churches that do that today. Usually it's a theological exam. Are you theologically orthodox? Something like that. But he had to demonstrate proficiency in Greek and Hebrew and theology, and he had to demonstrate proficiency in being able to teach the Bible. But, you know, that wasn't really that outrageous in the 30s. I learned yesterday that before World War II, if you, that, that, that a man would not even be considered for ordination in the Anglican Church if he did not have all 150 Psalms memorized. Think about that. Think about the kind of culture 
that has that as a standard. Now, we can talk about, quibble about the impact of liberalism on Anglicanism, but that, that, that reflected a culture and a foundation that went back two or three hundred years that valued, not, valued the Word of God so much that had a standard for men who taught the Word that they would have so much of it memorized before they could enter into a public ministry. Because if any of you have tried to memorize Scripture, you know that when you are reviewing it over and over in your mind, you're, you're thinking about, well, what does it mean, and what does that word mean, and how does this phrase relate to that phrase? And so it causes you to think more profoundly and more deeply about what the Scripture means. And so that, that which you teach is no longer superficial. It's not just something you cobble together on a Saturday before you teach it on Sunday. It's something that reflects uh, years and years of thought that went into uh, understanding the Word of God. And this was something that the people in the pew did as well, and they were expected to do. And it was a time, of course, when they didn't have television. Uh, Early 20th century, they might have had some radio. Uh, They didn't have the entertainment distractions that we have. We probably are exposed to more entertainment in 24 hours than they were exposed to in their whole life. They had time. If they were going from point A to point B, and they were on a horse, and as they rode that horse, let's say you're, you're a pastor, you're riding that horse, you can let the horse go and can't let a car go. Can't let go of that steering wheel. You can let a horse go, and he's going to stay on the road, and you can open up your Greek text, and you can read it. There was um, the, I can't remember his name off the top of my head right now, but uh, Stephen something or other, uh, Langdon, was uh, the man in the 1500s who versified the New Testament as he rode on horseback from Paris, France, to Lyon, he had his Greek text open, no verses, just chapters, and he marked where the verses should be. Those are the verses you have in your New Testament. Because people had time and they could focus on these things. We don't have that kind of time, and we don't take the time to discipline ourselves uh, to do that. But this is what makes worship different last week at the end of the uh, at the end of the class i was tying some things together with the phrase relate, related to living waters and um let me see if i have a hymnal up here and as we worked our way through that term living waters i noticed on Sunday morning, how many of y'all noticed anything Sunday morning related to the lesson last Tuesday night? Anybody notice anything? We've sung this hymn on 278, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Second verse. Think about the thought development of the writer. What is going what his understanding of the scripture that produces this level of poetry. See the streams of living waters, 
springing from eternal love. Well supply thy sons and daughters, and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst to assuage? Grace, which like the Lord the giver, never fails from age to age. Now the writer of the words for that hymn is well known to everyone here. His name was John Newton, also wrote Amazing Grace. This was a man who knew the scriptures well memorized large portions of Scripture and thought profoundly about them that so, such that he could write these kinds of words. There's real theological depth and thought that goes in there that shows a familiarity with Scripture to be able to take the imagery from Scripture and recast that into this kind of poetry. I'm not going to take the time tonight, but if we wanted to, we could go look at some of the ways in which contemporary Christian choruses use living water imagery and how superficial the poetry is. That doesn't honor God. It reflects a superficial and shallow understanding of God. And I don't say that to, to cast stone because all of us do. When I read of men who have memorized huge portions of Scripture, it's terribly convicting. You know, I read and I study a lot, but the more that I read and I study, the more I realize how truly ignorant I am and how much more there is to learn and how much more pastors and theologians have read and studied and understood in the past. This is what we're talking about, is if we are going to reverently adore and praise God, it is not something simple like just saying praise God or hallelujah, but it has to do with a, it, it comes out of a deep reflection upon God's word and appreciation for it. And that leads to the second part, which is an express commitment of trust, which is often what happens as we sing hymns and other things, uh, maybe uh, reading scripture together or reciting creeds in some churches. It expresses that. But the problem with citing creeds is that most people who recite them don't know what they're about. They don't have enough knowledge of biblical teaching to really appreciate the nuances of the creeds and why they are said the way they are, just something they mindlessly repeat. And it, it again becomes a worship that is ritual without explanation. And then the third is to remember God's gracious work of salvation. To remember it means to go back to when it begins. That's why we're spending time in the garden and with the original creation and then the fall, to remember God's gracious salvation and spiritual growth through divinely prescribed ordinances. And all of this not only looks back to the creation and fall, but looks forward to its fulfillment in, in the future. So I've talked about why it's important to... Uh, study this Old Testament worship. And first of all, just emphasizing the majesty of God and the breadth and depth and interconnectedness of everything in his creation and, of course, everything in his word. By tracing these themes, 
it impresses us with how finely designed the scriptures are. That this isn't just something that was written by chance by different people at different times explaining their uh, different experiences with God, but it is the revealed word of God that has significant pattern to it that is there for a purpose. And I ran across uh, earlier when I talked about how the number seven shows up so many times in the first creation narrative in the seven days and how that's repeated. It's going to show up again when we get into Genesis 4 and the whole episode with Cain and Abel and how you know, down to this minute structure, there's this structuring that goes on that shows how uh, how minute God's organization of his revelation is. So a second thing that we're, we see in this is that it allows us to trace key aspects of worship as they develop scripturally. So we'll see the origination of sacrifice, and it's interesting, I was having a conversation the other day about sacrifice. And a comment was made, well, the word sacrifice is used of the ultimate sacrifice, the death of Christ on the cross. And sometimes it seems rather simple and prosaic to apply that to times when we may give to the church or we may do this or do that and call it a sacrifice. And yet that same word is used uh, throughout Scripture to describe, for example, in Hebrews 13, I think it's Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, that we have the sacrifice of praise to God. And in the next verse, it talks about doing uh, good deeds and treating people with kindness is a sacrifice. And so those are small compared to the major sacrifice of Christ, but they're part of the ways in which we exhibit Christ's likeness, and that's part of of sacrifice and worship. So sacrifice comes in and plays a part of worship as well as proclamation. We see a phrase at the end of at the end of Genesis four that is not explained well until you get into Exodus, and yet it's repeated several times, and it has to do with calling on the name of the Lord, which means to proclaim that which is related to his character. And that's an important thing to understand when we get into the whole New Testament, and it's a major uh, background for understanding things in the Gospel of John, that we have to understand God's character because when you're proclaiming the name of God, you're proclaiming who he is and what he has done. And how do we do that? And proclamation is part of every worship service because we proclaim the word of God we teach it and explain it so in previous lessons we've seen that often these worship practices in generations are affected by a worldview so we have to understand that second we begin to examine a key teaching of scripture and we're tracing that through and how God's dwelling has occurred we're going to see a little bit more of that today and then third we saw that the tabernacle and temple patterned a heavenly archetype okay
here's where we have been developing. We've looked at Eden. Eden is in the center of the earth. There's really the whole earth. Then there's Eden itself. And then there is a garden planted east of Eden. These are three separate locations which are parallel to what we see in the tabernacle and temple. There's the area outside of the tabernacle that's uh, analogous to the world. Then there's the holy place itself, the uh, Mishkan comprised of the holy place and the holy of holies. And so the holy place is comparable to Eden, the holy of holies comparable to the garden. And this is used to teach things and to remind the Jews of what there was originally and the separation from God is depicted as we've seen by the by the cherubs on the on the veils. A man is excluded from the garden, God set up a guard of cherubs, an angelic army surrounding the Garden of Eden to prevent access uh, to God. Then we saw last time we started looking at the characteristics that we see in the garden of God described in Ezekiel 28, certain gold and precious gems. We saw that those same gold and precious gems show up in the breastplate of the high priest and again in the temple. And I didn't take the time to do it, but if we go to the New Jerusalem, then these same precious stones are are. are all around the New Jerusalem. And at the center of the New Jerusalem is the presence presence of God. So these, these things are not irrelevant to Scripture. God puts them in there and express, expects us to trace them out and think about their significance, and it shows a unity in Scripture and not that this was just different people doing different things on their own. Uh, Genesis describes a situation we talked a lot about water and I want to review that and talk about it a little more today that as God created in the in Eden there is a river that goes out of Eden and waters the garden again see there's a distinction in those two places there's Eden and there's the garden and it waters the garden God provides for his people he provides life. The water is a source of life. It produces growth in all of the trees, and they flourish, and there is a tremendous abundance there as God provides for his people. The river that comes out divides into four, the Pishon, and then the Gihon, and the Hedekel, and the Euphrates, those four rivers. Now, three of those names show up later on in history, um, or at least two of them, excuse me, the Gihon and the Euphrates. But they're not the same rivers that existed before because they don't diverge. The Gihon is, we have that name applied to the spring, which indicates an underwater river flowing under Jerusalem and under the Temple Mount. We'll talk more about that. I just touched on it a little bit last time. And the Euphrates is the river that separates, uh, the. well, it represents the eastern boundary of the Promised Land, 
and separates the promised land from the plain of Shinar and the location of Babylon. And Babylon always represents the forces that are hostile to God. It's a literal place, and it was built initially by Nimrod, described in Genesis 11, as they built this tower uh, to oppose God. And so that imagery is important to understand throughout Scripture. But we have this picture in the garden that there's a river that comes out of the garden, splits into four. And then when we get to the end of the Bible in Revelation uh, 22, we read that there is a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This is the living water that comes out. And what's interesting here is we read a couple of verses later, John says, or, or actually the chapter before in Revelation 21.3, where he's describing this new heavens and new earth. He says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Now this is in the new heaven and the new earth. The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So can you think of another place in Scripture that talks about God being with men? Anybody's name might indicate that? Emmanuel, God with us. El is God. Im is the Hebrew preposition with and Immanu, the N-U in the middle of it, is the first-person plural uh, pronoun. Immanu is with us, El, God with us. And so now, uh, because that is the name or title for the Messiah, the Messiah is the one who will be incarnate and dwell among us. And that word for dwelling among us in John one uh, fourteen is the same word that we have showing up here, it's translated a tabernacle. Now, in the Old Testament, the word for tabernacle is the Hebrew word I have here, mishkan. Now, remember, they didn't have vowels in Hebrew, so it's just M-S-H-K-N. The M is put there at the beginning. It takes a verb. The M converts it to a participle or a noun. So the main verb is shikan, which means to dwell. It came over into many languages. In Greek, it's skene. See, it's S-K-N. It's the same consonants. It's the same word. Where do you think that came from? It comes from the, I believe, Hebrew is the original language, uh, from the Garden of Eden. But you have mishkan means a dwelling place, translated as a tabernacle, which means a dwelling place. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and uh, he will dwell, there's in the text of Revelation 21.3 is the verb form, skenao, he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and God will be their God. So we have that reference. We have the background, of course, as, as skene. And... Um, In John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. The glory... No, that's um, not the verse that I was looking for. Um, 
that God, uh, God became flesh and dwelt among us. Yeah, that's the word, dwelt among us, that's skene. In John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this ties this together, this idea that God dwelt with man in the garden, and he had close fellowship, walked every day with Adam and Eve, taught them, instructed them, conversed with them, developed that rapport and that relationship until there was sin. And this takes place in this central place on the earth at that time, which is the place of God's dwelling, which is also referred to by the Hebrew and Greek words that come over into English as a sanctuary. So this is a place of worship in the Garden of Eden that gets destroyed, that man is no longer functioning as a priest, indicated by the terms to work and attend the garden. The Hebrew words are often used describing the work of the priest. He's no longer able to rule over the planet as God intended. And so God is going to restore all of this, and that's the process of history going through, through the Old Testament. And when it is finished, we read in Revelation 21, 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. So last time we talked about this this theme of the living water that goes through Scripture, and here we have its reference in the new heavens and new earth as the water of life that is given freely. Now that's important because there's this verse in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1 that says, Ho, come to the water and drink freely. It is a recognition of this tying things together back to Isaiah and that it is the gospel that the water of life is given freely to us. We are not to work for it or earn it. God freely gives us everything we need for eternal life. And then Revelation twenty two seventeen repeats this again, and the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. It's at no cost. This is the gospel. And also, just to add it to this point in Revelation twenty-one, twenty-two, there's no temple in the new heavens and the new earth for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The whole earth becomes the temple of God, and his glory illuminates everything so that no, no sun and no moon are necessary. And then what I did last time, I took us through a couple of psalms that talk about this. Psalm 36.6, your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep, O Lord. You preserve man and beast. How precious is your faithful, loyal love, your loyalty, loyalty to your covenant with Israel. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. So we trust God because he is trustworthy. He is stable. He is a solid foundation. The shadow of your wings is a zoomorphism, uh, taking the image of a mother hen that is shielding and protecting her, her chicks. We worship God because he's the source of all our security and all our, all our life. And then it goes on to say, They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. 
and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures and saw that it's not river of pleasures. Pleasure is the Hebrew word Eden. This river of Eden takes us back to God as the sustaining source of life. And that's what's behind here. And the very next verse goes on to say, for with you is the fountain of life. If the river of your pleasures doesn't have the same significance as rivers of Eden when you tack, when you see it connected to the next verse. For you is the fountain of life. That's to take us back to remember that God is the source of our life. And this theme that we see through Scripture is God is the source of life. Water is necessary for life. And so water is used to represent God's provision for everything for us in life. And it represents the the free provision of eternal life that is at no cost. Isaiah 55, 1, I mentioned earlier, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. It is offered freely. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. There's no cost to eternal salvation. It is a free gift. We have to accept it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not a reward. It's not something we earn or deserve. It is a free gift. And so Isaiah 55.1 connects us over to uh, Revelation chapter 21. Then I connected that to Psalm 46.4. Now this is gets a little interesting when we connect this. I'm going to add some other verses tonight. There's a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God. Some people think it's the river of grace. Some people think it's the river of God's mercy. Some people think it's the river of God's provision. It's a literal river. It's literal water that's under Jerusalem. Uh, And this is related to it makes the city of God glad because it provides life for them. You can't have a city someplace where there's no source of water. You have a place in the desert, it's got to have a well nearby. Uh, that's wh- where many places develop because they found a source of water. And what did they look for when they uh, w- would identify a place that had water? Often you look for trees. I remember when I was... Uh, uh, a, a young guy, I was probably 14 years old at the time, and I used to go with Camp Penile on, on canoe trips, and we would canoe up on the upper Colorado River in Texas. Back then, all that was ranch land, and nobody was around. And we would just uh, fill up our canteens out of, the wa- out of the river, which in August, the hot, muddy Colorado River wasn't the tastiest water in the world. But we were taught how to look for springs and you would be going along and you might see a sycamore tree and you'd realize that a sycamore tree sucks up a huge amount of water and usually they're at a spring or a source of water and we would find springs at least once a day we would find a spring and we would go fill up our our canteens with fresh cold spring water and and that was just great it was so refreshing uh, when you've got a 100, 105 degree day and you're out in the sun all day to have that that cold water. So cities, towns would grow up around these wells because they needed a good good source of water. So 
you have a source of water that's God's provided for Jerusalem. And I showed you the map. This is the city, the uh, city of David. On the uh, this is to the north up here. This is the temple, Temple Mount, and the major spring was the Gihon Spring with the same name as the Gihon River mentioned in Genesis 2. It's not the same river. But this doesn't simply represent a spring that is there. There is a huge source of subterranean uh, water here. But the water from the Gihon Spring would flow down. They built tunnels, and it would flow down to um, uh, somewhere in, in um, let me see, this from Springtown all the way down to here, which is where they had the the uh, Pool of Siloam, or Shiloach in the Hebrew, Siloam in the Greek. And I showed you this picture last time. This is where Jesus uh, uh, healed the blind man, told him to wash his eyes at the Pool of Siloam, and this is what it looks like today. And that water came from the Gihon Spring. This is when you walk through Hezekiah's Tunnel, you're walking through the water from the Gihon Spring. Now, the fact that there's water here is interesting. In Ezekiel 47.1, as God is giving Ezekiel a vision of the future temple, now this is the temple that is built during the millennium, during the Messianic age. There is at the end of the tribulation period this huge earthquake and this uplift uh, in in Jerusalem, so that there is a new temple mount that is a, a mile square. It's huge. It's enormous. It's much larger than what we have today. And what Ezekiel describes is that uh, this angel has given him this tour. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. Well, what's east of the Temple Mount today? It's the Kidron Valley. So you have this water that flows that way, and it flows from under the right side of the temple from the south of the altar. So this is now becomes the new river of life in the Millennial Kingdom. It flows from the altar in the, uh, in the temple. And what happens also at the end of the tribulation in that day, it shall be that living waters, notice that, not dead waters. Here it's not talking about living waters in a spiritual sense, but living waters that produce life, physical life. In contrast to the water, it's going to contrast it to the water, the salt water that's in the Dead Sea. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. But what happens at the end of the tribulation when Jesus returns and he uh, steps down on the Mount of Olives is the Mount of Olives will will ha- there will be this earthquake and it splits north to south and opens up an east west uh, causeway so that the Jews who have been uh, trapped in Jerusalem can escape, but it creates an opening to this underground river that is under Jerusalem so that water comes out and part of it flows west to the Mediterranean and the other part flows east to the Dead Sea and completely rejuvenates the water in the Dead Sea so that it produces life. So this is why it's referred to as living water. All of this takes us back to understanding what God is doing. So 
What we see in summary here is the city of David and the temple are described as being over a river of water, and this becomes evident only in the future uh, millennium. And the temple mount becomes a source of, of water that flows out past the Mount of Olives. Again, it's, it, it fits within this structure of all of this imagery. Second, the use of literal flowing water is, is a picture of God's future deliverance and salvation. So it's not just the fact that there's living physical water, but it depicts something, and it's not just a symbol. There really will be this, this actual living water there. And it's also used as a picture of the abundance of life the abundance of God's blessing that is also a foreshadowing of the Holy Spirit in the future kingdom under the new covenant. Because with the new covenant, you have a fresh outpouring of God the Holy Spirit and the rich blessings that will come upon Israel. And then fifth, or fourth, fourth, that should be wrong number, uh, but the water is also a picture of eternal life as a free gift of God. So God multitasks in the way that he uses these particular symbols. Now, God is always viewed as the source of the water. He's the source of life. He's the one who provides. And so in Jeremiah 2, as you see the Israelites forsaking God and turning to idols. And who's one of the main idols that influences Israel during this this uh, during the Old Testament period from the time of Ahab on. Who's the main god that gets them all <coughs> distracted into the fertility worship? Baal. Baal is the what kind of god is he? He's a storm god. He's the God who brings rain and thunder. This is why when Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal, that he sets the whole contest up by uh, declaring that there won't be rain until he decrees it, until he says it for three and a half years, there's no rain. And then uh, Elijah is going to show up and challenge them to a battle and calling and building a big uh, a sacrifice, a big altar, and putting a sacrifice on there and calling on Baal to to light it because he's also the god of thunder and lightning, and he completely fails. And then then God is not only going to completely um, completely uh, take that altar, completely incinerate that altar, that afterward... Uh, Elijah is going to look off towards the Mediterranean Sea, and he's going to see a small cloud that grows into thunder, a thunderstorm, and he comes and begins to bring rain on Israel after three and a half years, demonstrating that Baal doesn't do anything. God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the God. He is the source of living water. He is the one who provides. Now, we skip ahead. We did this last time to John chapter 4 briefly, and I want to just stop and talk a little bit more about what's happening in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus, this is the uh, third major episode that we see in John, or you could say it's the fourth, but um, I'm I'm just starting with the first episode where Jesus is at the uh, wedding at Cana, the second major 
uh, episode is when he's having his conversation with Nicodemus. And the third major episode is when he has this meeting with the Samaritan woman. Now, you have to understand what's going on here. Samaria is the area that previously was Israel, the northern kingdom. It is located between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. And the the Israelites who had traditionally lived there were uh, taken away by the Assyrians and other peoples were moved there and their population was was, uh, shifted so that they uh, would not uh, be able to unite in rebellion against the Assyrian Empire. And so you had this completely new hybrid of people there that were partially Jewish and partially whatever, wherever they came from in the Assyrian Empire. And they were looked down as sort of a half-breed hybrid people uh, by the Jews. There was no respect for them. And in fact, they didn't even want to go there. They would often walk to the other side of the Jordan River if they were in Galilee and walking south instead of the direct route. Uh, due south, they would cross the Jordan and come down on the eastern side of the Jordan before they crossed back at Jericho and came uh, came to Jerusalem. But Jesus takes his disciples the straight route through Samaria because he's got a, he's going to meet with this particular uh, woman, and so they come to Sychar. We're told in verse five, which is near Shechem, it is a small village that is. Uh, near Shechem that is down the hill from Shechem. Shechem is where modern Nablus is. And so this woman has to climb this hill. She's got to walk about a half a mile uphill to get to this well. And it's uh, the well is near this plot of ground, we're told. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus goes there to be refreshed, and this Samaritan woman uh, comes to the well, and Jesus says, give me a drink. Now, so she wants to know why he's talking to her, because he's a Jew, and they would, A, a Jewish male would never ask a woman to give him a drink, or not a Samaritan woman, at least, because they'd have no dealings with her. And so he says to her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I mentioned this last time. It's that theme of living water. What does he mean by that? He phrases this in a somewhat cryptic way because uh, she's got to wonder what is this gift of God And who are you that's saying this? So it raises questions in her mind. Now, here is a picture of this well. Today, it is 75 feet deep. It's one of the deepest wells in Israel. And, of course, over the centuries, a lot of dirt and detritus and everything, probably rocks and everything, have filled it in some. So it was probably much deeper at that point. It is located inside of a church in uh, Nablus. And here we have, just so you, this is, uh, uh, this is Tommy Ice here on the right. And then this is, um, what's his name? Barb. Joel. Joel Kramer. Joel Kramer on the left. And so they are, uh, we were able to get water in the silver bucket that's over there by Joel and Joel, you know, we would drop it down, and we got to drink the water. It's great. It's pure. It's wonderful. And and this is exactly where Jesus was. 
He was right here by this well talking to this woman. Just amazing that you can go to a place uh, like that. Here's another look at the well. So they had this conversation, and uh, the woman says, well, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. How are you going to get that living water? She hasn't figured out that the living water is not... uh, is is symbolic of what Jesus is getting ready uh, to show her. So in verse 13, Jesus says, Well, whoever drinks of this water will never thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that, I mean, whoever drinks of this water, the physical water there, will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Well, what does that mean? He's talking about salvation here. It's not going to be just take care of physical life. It's going to provide eternal life. How do you get this water? And that's eventually what she is going to ask. But in the meantime, he's got to demonstrate who he is because she's not too sure who he is. And so she wants the water. She's Basically, in verse 15, she says, Give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. She's tired of walking up that hill every morning. She's got to walk up that hill and walk back several times a day to get enough water. And that was was laborious. So she just wants relief from her thirst. And then Jesus says, Go call your husband. A couple of things are going on there. First of all, he's a, a Jewish male. She is a female and so he's got to go through her husband. So he wants to show that he's showing proper respect that you should bring your husband here and I will provide this for him. And so, But that also serves a purpose to expose uh, the sin in her life. And he does it, Jesus does it in a very tactful manner. He's not trying to uh, embarrass her, but she gets the point. She says, well, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you said that correctly. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is your husband. You're just living with this guy. And so she recognizes that, that he, must have, uh, he must be a prophet, insight from God. There's something special about him because um, he knows all of her dark secrets. And so she says, I perceive you're a prophet. And then she wants to change the topic to one of the really controversial issues between Samaritans and Jews. Jews worshipped it, said the, the Temple Mount was in Jerusalem, whereas the Samaritans said that the temple should be on Mount Gerizim. You go there today, they, they, they have a temple there. They sacrifice animals there. Joel Kramer's got a video uh, uh, about the sacrifice up on his website and you can you can look at that, and that's what they do every every uh, every year at Passover. They slaughter the the lambs, and so she raises this controversial issue. And Jesus says, "Woman, believe me. Come on. There we go. Verse twenty-one. Woman, believe me. The hour is coming." when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father, there's going to be a change. He says, you worship what you do not know. Hmm, they thought they knew. 
So Jesus is not being uh, winsome here. He's not catering to their ignorance. He says, you worship what you're ignorant of. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. It's not from the Samaritans. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, or literally by means of the Holy Spirit and by means of truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in or by means of the spirit and truth. So there's a lot of different lessons that are wrapped up in this. And what we see here is a reiteration of the same theme that goes on and on, that God is the only source of light and life. He's the one who provides the living water. Living water represents life. And we see from John chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is a revelation of light and life. And so Jesus offers the water of life through faith alone as a free gift to her. And so that becomes, and she accepts it, and she goes back and runs into town to tell everybody what has what has happened to her. Now this same theme gets picked up. I talked about this last time in John seven thirty seven. I was rushed at the end because I wanted to get this whole connection down. On the last day, that's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day of the feast. This may have been the eighth day. It usually lasted seven days, but they celebrated always on the eighth day. Uh, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He's identifying himself as the source of the living waters. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The rivers of living water are the source of life eternal. So if you accept Jesus then what flows from you as a regenerate believer is the information needed to have life eternal. That's the imagery here. The rivers that come out of you aren't literal rivers. It's the rivers that come as you tell others about Jesus. It goes back to passages like Isaiah 12.3, Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. These were sung by the Jews on that eighth day, along with Isaiah 55.1, How everyone who thirsts come to the waters, and you who have no money come to, come to the waters, and uh, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And we have seen this this before. So, as we study through this, one of the things that comes out is that in this particular episode, uh, at the time of the feast, is that the high priest and another priest would go each morning, each of the seven mornings, through the feast, and they would go down to the pool of Siloam. That's the pool I had the picture of earlier. And they would draw water from that pool of Siloam. Now, what, what, that's the river that God has provided, according to Psalm 46, for the joy of Jerusalem. So they're taking that water each morning, and they carry it back up into the temple through, this, through the water gate to the temple courtyard. And there they would uh, ceremoniously pour out the water into a silver basin, 
on the west side of the brazen altar so that it would flow down through a gutter to the base of the altar. And as they did this, the Jews are singing these hymns from Isaiah 12 and Isaiah uh, 53. And so every day they would then uh, pour this out as an offering uh, to God, which represents God's provision of water and life during the uh, during the wilderness, striking the the rock and providing providing water. But it has a forward picture because Jesus or John interprets what Jesus is saying in John seven thirty nine and says, "But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive." So that it's depicting what will happen in the church age, the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit in every believer. He says, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the implication there is that the Spirit is given after Jesus is glorified. When is he glorified? After the ascension, when he sits at the right hand of the Father, he's glorified. Then the Spirit's given on the day of Pentecost. What happens then is he indwells every believer, and we learn from 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19, where Paul says, first, do you not know that you are the temple of God? So it shifts from something external to something that is related to every individual believer, and the Spirit of God dwells in us, not in a physical temple or tabernacle, but in our bodies are prepared as a a dwelling place for God the Son. Do you not know that your body is the temple produced by the Holy Spirit who is in you? We are indwelt by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whom you have from God, and so you're not your own. So what we see here is that this whole concept of the river of life is one that flows all the way through the Old Testament and points eventually to salvation, which is what Jesus clearly articulates in in the Gospels, and ultimately to the provision of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And our life is to be a life of worship and service to God. So next time we're going to come back and talk about the tree of life and then what happens with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and into Genesis chapter 4. So that will be next week. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at how these you have woven these themes. You have designed this from eternity past so that these themes, these ideas would be structured into the Scripture, structured into the world, so that there would be the water under the Temple Mount, that there would be the Gihon Spring located there uh, by that uh, finger of land that is the old city of David, the the city of the Jezreelites. And Father, we pray that we might come to understand that all of this reflects your majesty, the fact that you are the creator and the one who oversees all of creation, and therefore you are the only one who is worthy of worship and worthy to be praised. And we pray that you would use this to challenge us in terms of our own understanding of Scripture, that we might push ourselves to go beyond the easy and the superficial 
that characterizes so much of modern life and that we would take the time to truly seek you in your word and to learn about you and to internalize what you have revealed in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.